WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. In this season of light, when the days are short and dark, we celebrate. Hindus recognize Bodhi Day, Jews light menorahs to observe Hanukkah, Christians mark the birth of Jesus with the Star of Bethlehem or the Christmas Star, African Americans honor the seven principles of Kwanzaa with candles, and in the 21st century, children from countries around the world eagerly await the arrival of Santa Claus. Yes, even Santa with Rudolph's red nose so bright. Darkest days, celebrations of light. And as people celebrate, they think more about giving. Which raises the question, beyond our personal circles, who needs us? How are our vulnerable populations faring? What does their welfare and the quality of their lives say about us? Today, it's a brief look at the vulnerables among us, humans, yes, but also our dogs and the flora and fauna in our local environment. Dedicated animal lovers around the region offer shelter and aid to dogs, cats, pigs, horses, goats, and other domesticated animals in southeastern North Carolina, and the need continues to grow. Diana Topchin started Freedom Bridge Animal Rescue NC in Wilmington in 2021. She is the current president of the nonprofit whose mission is to serve, advocate, and be the voice for the underprivileged and abandoned animals awaiting forever homes in shelters throughout New Hanover County and surrounding counties as they are able. She joins me now. Diana Topchin, welcome to Coastline. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. It's it's an honor to be here. I appreciate it. It's good to have you with us. Thank you. Now, tell us what you've seen over the course of 2023 in terms of the dogs that you rescue. So um, 2023, and I think my other rescue colleagues, both for felines and for dogs, will say the same thing. It's probably the worst year we've we've ever seen in terms of the number of dogs being surrendered to shelters. Same thing with cats. Um, we obviously do predominantly dogs. Um, and rehomes, people asking constantly to have their, you know, animal rehomed um, because they can't care for them any longer. Some do financial, due to finances, a lot due to what they articulate as time available. So it's it's been a challenge. It has been a, a really difficult year. Why do you think there's been such an uptick? What are the causes of this? You know, it's it's a little bit hard. You know, I can give you my perspective and what I've heard and, and some of my rescue colleagues. You know, I think some of it is still a result of COVID. You know, a lot of people got animals, pets while they were at home and they wanted company. Now they're going back to work. They uh, don't perceive they have the time to care for these animals anymore. So I think that's some of it. I think that, um, you know, we've seen several litters coming of puppies. So a lot of the pups are not altered, meaning neutered or spay, and are reproducing. And sometimes it's a surprise, sometimes it's planned, and then they can't manage the care of the of the mama and the puppies. So... Um, I, I think it's a lot of things. I mean, I, I'm, I'm confident finance pays in, plays into some of that as well, certainly. I mean, prices are going up. It is costly to, you know, take great care of your, if your animal, you know, your pet. Um, so I think it's a variety of, of issues, to be candid with you. However, I think some of it just really stemmed from COVID. Yeah. Now, we know that this area is seeing explosive growth 
as the population increases, Mm -hmm. some of the associated issues also increase. But what are some of the things you wish people understood a little bit better about taking in animals and what they need to know? Um, I I really appreciate that question. Um, I wish that I wish a couple things. I wish one that people would understand that you know these are souls and it's for a lifetime. Uh, it's not a toy. It's not a stuffed animal. It's it's an animal that needs love. Um, I wish they would understand that it does. You know, to to I guess maybe look at their finances to see can they afford the care. Um, assuming regular care and obviously not assuming emergency care that comes up unanticipated. But can you afford to see the vet every year and make sure that your pup is up to date on vaccines and on heartworm prevention and flea and tick prevention? Um, And I think I wish that people would understand that while they're at work, their pup's okay. It's just waiting they're waiting for their human to come back home. So it's not always about the quantity of time available. A lot of it is truly the quality of the time spent. You used the term souls. You said these are souls. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? They're not um, – I think it, they are, there are instances where the mentality is that these are personal property, and they're not. They're living, breathing souls, and, you know, I, I think how often, particularly during COVID, people went and got pups or cats because they wanted companionship. So at that point, it was a companion, it was a friend. And I guess I have to ask, when did that end? Now, obviously, since you are the founder and the president mm-hmm. of Freedom Bridge Animal Rescue NC, this this affects you so deeply, and you wrote a poem about it called A Holiday Wish. Just tell us briefly when this poem came out and what is it based on? So it actually, this is a side of me I don't think a lot of people know. I tend to periodically just think about things and write poems. And I had just been at two different shelters um, that are overwhelmed with animals and it just broke my heart and so I thought what can I do to help get the message out to people that there are these these pups need help you know so that's I just sat down and just wrote it and this is based on a famous poem yes it was the night before Christmas I needed that cadence <laughs> a little bit <laughs> okay and we are going to hear WHQR morning edition host and Coastline Technical Director Ken Campbell read A Holiday Wish by Diana Topchin. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the shelter, nary a sound was heard, no helter-skelter. Each lay anxiously in their makeshift beds with visions of forever homes dancing through their heads. The workers were there trying to make it a good night, praying these souls would not give up the fight." Each brought with them a little toy and treat, working to make happy those alone and beat. As the workers went from kennel to kennel, each lost soul looked up with eyes so gentle. The question they saw in their eyes so sad was, What did I do that was so bad? Suddenly a noise was heard, so loud and clear. Each soul barked or meowed an excited cheer. Maybe, just maybe, Santa found them all homes. 
and no one would celebrate the holidays alone. With hopeful eyes they all looked around, yet sadly it was another soul just found. As they all retreated back to their beds, they silently cried and lowered their heads. Another night with no one to love, another night to pray to the above. As the lights went out and the workers went home, the silence was deafening, each soul alone. And as the night turned into day, they all crossed their paws and began to pray. Together they asked for only one thing, a family to love so joy they could bring. As we stop and listen to their silent cries, perhaps as humans, we can create new ties. So as the year comes again to an end, maybe, just maybe, you can find your new friend. WHQR's Ken Campbell reading A Holiday Wish by Diana Topchin, founder and president of Freedom Bridge Animal Rescue, NC in Wilmington. Now, part of the issue of animal care in this region has to do with perhaps laws that aren't quite up to snuff in terms of really protecting our domestic animals. Can you talk about some of the the laws that you'd like to see on the books that you think would be more protective? Um, I think, you know, from my, and again, from my perspective, um, I think it's important that the laws look at animals beyond personal property. Uh, it just continues to facilitate that mentality that they are disposable. Um, and, you know, I think as as we look at what are the minimum requirements, they really are the minimum. And oftentimes, uh, I would tell you that our local animal control or whatever attempts to, you know, make a difference with the individuals when they go see the see the pup or the cat or whatever animal it happens to be that they may have received a complaint on. And they do a lot of education, but at the end of the day, if they have a shelter and the shelter's not defined and they have water available, there's really not a lot at that moment that that officer can do except educate. If the need is only growing, how do you cope? Like, how, how do you take care of yourself? So I, I tell you, it's... Um, I used to be in a in a different position which was challenging and what I would do is I would on those bad days open up cards that people had given to me I you know that they'd sent to me I'd keep them and I would read them and say this is why I'm doing what I'm doing people who'd adopted animals no from... no I'm sorry in my pre- in my previous position oh, I'm sorry they gotcha. were staff members that would you know it was a leadership position and oftentimes you don't see the gratification very quickly um so I would read the cards and um now what I do is I look at pictures from the animals that have been adopted. A lot of our adopters, in fact, several of them just sent pictures in front of the Christmas tree with their animals, and that fills my heart. Um, and, you know, uh, I think in the other component of it is we all want to rescue every animal. We know that we just can't, and that can become very um, disheartening. And you are listening to Coastline, Diana Topchin of Freedom Bridge Animal Rescue NC. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time and hope you have happy holidays. Thank you. You as well. And of course, we'll have links and resources on our website if folks want to help in any way. After this short break, Andy Wood is here with a look at the environmental successes and challenges of 2023, as well as his wish list for 2024. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. North Carolina is seeing, as anyone paying attention knows, explosive growth, especially in what we often call the Cape Fear region. And of course... I'll get lambasted for using that term in a moment. But Andy Wood, biologist and director of Coastal Plain Conservation Group, also our guide in in the Wild Coastal Plain series, is concerned. As development rapidly obliterates the larger connected patches of natural area, we are losing habitat for native flora and fauna. He's with me now to take a look at the challenges facing this biodiverse hotspot that ramped up over 2023. We're also going to talk about a few of the big successes that deserve celebration. And he'll offer his wish list for 2024. And he would. Welcome back to Coastline. Thanks very much for having me. It's so good to have you with us. Now, tell us first about this big success. News just broke a few weeks ago about the magnificent ram's horn snail. What just happened? It is a bittersweet success story. But what happened is a the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service finally um, uh, agreed that a critically rare freshwater snail known only from four localities in the lower Cape Fear region, uh, mill ponds, including Greenfield Lake, that uh, Fish and Wildlife finally decided that, yes, it warrants listing as an endangered species. The bittersweet part of it is, um, the sweet part is the snail is not extinct. The bitter part is it is so rare it warrants listing as an endangered species. So, um, the reason the snail is not extinct is because you, and I'm not going to get the year right, was it what year? It was in the ni- 1992. August 28th, uh, my dear friend, Pastor Bill Adams, then at that time was a biologist with the Corps of Engineers, and he knew about this snail and um, stumbled on it several years earlier, a shell and thought, well, it may still be around. I was working at the aquarium then, and he knew I liked little things because he heard me on public radio. So he called me up out of the blue. I didn't know Bill, and we chatted, and he told me about this snail, and we crafted a plan to spend our free time on in summer 92, checking every pond that we could get into to see if we could find the snail. So we became fast canoe friends, and and. We're out dip netting weekends and weekdays whenever we could get out. And on a hot August 28th, 1992, we found the snail in a private mill pond in Brunswick County. And I brought it into captivity at the aquarium. The salt air in the building contaminated their water. So I had to abandon the aquarium and bring them home, usurped our young son's little wading pool as the first aquaculture tank for what is now the Planor Bella Conservatory, a, a collection of big aquaculture tanks holding snails. And you actually, when a hurricane was coming, you ran out into the wild to grab what you could of these snails because you knew that the effects from the hurricane were going to obliterate the rest of them it, because of saltwater intrusion? Well, one of the dumber things I've ever done, the hurricane was on us. We, it was full on. And um, our, we lived at the time on Bradley near Bradley Creek, which was flooding our house at the moment. 
And so while my wife Sandy and our two sons were cowering in the, in the hallway, I stupidly went out because I saw the tanks were lifting up in the floodwater and washing away. So, yeah, I went out in the middle of a hurricane stupidly, but I did succeed in rescuing 12 animals that um, continued to breed in captivity the following years. And then by great fortune, coincidentally, in 2004, I found a previously unknown population of the snails in another old mill pond in Brunswick County, brought them into captivity, raised them up, uh, combined them with the offspring I had from the previous generations, and lo and behold, we still have the snails alive today. It, it's been a family affair. They were extinct in the wild, and so I think it's fair to say that Andy Wood, you were single-handedly responsible <laughs> for. I'm and I'm not being hyperbolic here. That people need to understand this. You were single-handedly responsible for saving the magnificent ram's horn snail from extinction. And just this year, in 2023, was it the Division of Wildlife Resources just mm-hmm. released? So you gave them part of your population of snails, and they recently were able to release some into the wild. And so... A qualification. They're not in the wild. The snails are not back in their home habitat. Um, It's a small point for somebody other than me. That's important. But um, they're in a pond. They're in an isolated borrow pit that was dug for sand to do a road project or something on uh, Sunny Point. So they're outdoors. All of the other animals that have been in the Wildlife Commission's possession have been indoors. Mine are all outdoors in aquaculture tanks. But So um, this is it's an experiment, though, it's an that they were letting these snails yep. into the pond, and, yep. and they're going to see how they do. Correct. So, so we have to hold that up as one of the big successes. This is a, a big, good of news story. 2023. Yep. Now, what were some of the biggest challenges from 2023 environmentally? Uh, We still are uh, fighting the wood pellet industry here in North Carolina and in other states as well. And the wood pellet industry is um, – it's a a real problem. It's an energy scheme. It's a fraudulent energy scheme as people are now finally understanding. Um, And it's a process that involves uh, one corporation who employs – logging companies to go in and clear-cut whole forests, harvest the trees, grind the trees up into sawdust, pack them into pellets, load them into trucks, deliver those to the state port of Wilmington, where they're loaded into container ships that then cross the Atlantic Ocean 3,800 miles, spewing close to 5,000 tons of carbon dioxide with each passage across the ocean. Um, It's wildly wasteful. And it's all being done to generate electricity in England. So we are burning North Carolina trees to electrify Europe. And uh, the folly behind it all is that we would produce less carbon dioxide by burning coal than by burning trees. And the trees are actually sucking carbon dioxide out of the air if they're allowed to live. So that's an ongoing problem. But the good news is that major company's stock uh, this morning was selling for $1.14 per share. A year ago, it was close to $60 per share. So the real takeaway good news story here, the environmental community 
is figuring out how to use the economic engines of this country to um, help craft smart resource management strategies. Now, another issue. Recently, someone posted a photo on social media, uh, and I'm, I can't speak to the veracity of the, you know, I, the trustworthiness of the photo, but showed a sold real estate sign stuck into a patch of ground replete with Venus flytraps. And environmentalists were commenting uh, about how sick this photograph made them, and there was some suggestion that their efforts in some other places to relocate plants like these from sites that are about to be built upon. Have you heard of these efforts? Uh, uh, Plant rescues and wildlife rescues have been underway for a very long time. The problem is you're basically behaving like a zoo. Um, So we know the black rhino or the white rhino or, or Indonesian rhinos, they're all critically endangered. Let's catch them up and put them in a zoo. That's what we're doing with fly traps. When you go out and dig fly traps from one spot and plant them in another, you're still losing the habitat. And if you take the rhinos away from the wild and put them in a zoo to justify taking away their habitat, what have you done to all of the other plants and wildlife that live in that ecosystem, including ourselves? And and here's the big challenge going forward is humans need to really start thinking about ourselves in context with the rest of life on Earth. And by that, I mean we tend not to imagine ourselves as a species of wildlife. I'm a wildlife manager, and I look at Homo sapiens through the lens of a wildlife manager. And so I want us to think of ourselves as just as dependent on clean air, clean water, wholesome food, and safe shelter from the elements as we think we care about wildlife needs. Our needs are the same as those of wildlife here on Starship Earth. In an essay you sent me, originally published in Coastal Review Online in 2012, you talk about the winter solstice, December 21st, actually being the beginning of spring? For, what? <laughs> for me, every day gets longer after December 21st. So, yes, I regard solstice as the first day of spring, and, and I derive great pleasure in that. Now, in this, in this same essay, you also reference Immanuel Kant and, and the three questions that he poses for guidance. What can I know? What ought I to do? And what may I hope? So based on what you've told us about some of these challenges that are facing this region environmentally and how connected these challenges are to our own clean air and clean water and ability to survive, what ought I to do? When you're talking about a layperson who's hearing this and cares but doesn't know how to begin, where, where could someone begin? Um, the first step is to ensure we continue transferring knowledge to future generations. So all of this very frightening movement toward book banning and, and the undoing of our great national education system, that has to stop right now. 
uh, any talk of book banning and burning has to stop right now. Um, we wouldn't be talking in this microphone were it not for scientists and engineers who work side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand. Um, they're almost one and the same. And it's like people don't understand. It took a scientist to figure out how to make gasoline to power our automobiles. And we can't cherry pick knowledge anymore about known facts. So we have to first, Kant's first question, what can I know? What, what can't you know? That's just limited by your ability to learn. So we have to make sure that we focus on the continuation of learning. And then after that, think about, in my opinion, think about what do you need versus what do you want? There is a big difference between needs and wants. As, as we mentioned before going on air, needs, air, water, food, shelter, those are finite. Wants are infinite. We can conjure up any number of wants. I want to go to Mars. Okay, what are the consequences of flying to Mars going to be for everybody else left here on Earth? Uh, I think Musk should fly off to Mars. That's a great idea. But um, what consequence will even that have on the rest of us? Uh, a lot. There's a lot of time, energy, and resource that goes into a spaceship. You also you, so in this same essay, you also quote Henry David Thoreau, quoting Columnella, <laughs> who I think was also quoting maybe Virgil. And yes. <laughs> just, so, uh, Columnella, an ancient Roman writer on agriculture, and he says it is better to cultivate a little land well than a great deal. Ill. Prescient? Right now, for sure. Um, and, and we see that kind of brings me back to uh, um, what do we eat and what are our choices of foods that we eat. And it's not going to be long before meat is not something you see as commonly as we do today. With all due respect to, to ranchers, generations past and present that are involved in livestock production, we have to move away from that if we're going to have a suitable planet for future generations. We just have to bring ourselves down a notch on the food chain. Um, by that, I mean not us coming down on the food chain, but what choices of food we make for ourselves. And, you know, I'm not talking about vegetarianism or veganism. I'm talking about wise use of resources. And when you consider the amount of time and energy that goes into producing a, a single hog and the amount of waste produced in that process, and then think about humans and what we need we're putting a lot of energy into pigs, and we need to be putting all of our energy into our species. You've also voiced concerns about dredging of the Cape Fear River and specifically making it deeper as a shipping channel. Can I ask you what your hopes are for 2024, <laughs> or do, do we have to keep those two things separate? Um, why, why are you worried about deepening the Cape Fear River? What will that do? That's the main problem for the snail. 
going back to the magnificent ram's horn. It is gone from the wild as a consequence of saltwater intrusion, not not just ocean expansion, but saltwater intrusion as a direct consequence of deepening the Cape Fear River, which is the, the state's major river discharging directly into the Atlantic, communicates directly with the Atlantic Ocean. So there's a flushing of salty water coming up into the river. That explains all the dead trees that you see. So um, deepening the river is only hastening an inevitability. And that inevitability is um, declining aquifer condition because of saltwater intrusion. Um, that's So we're basically hastening in many respects, the consequences of an expanding ocean. And the ocean is expanding due to thermodynamics. As water warms, it expands. It's, it's one of those laws of physics that we don't have time to discuss. I won't argue because I agree with it. But um, So dredging the river is going to have negative consequences, not just for the battleship, but even for the Corps of Engineers who have office space on Eagles Island that they are now working to abandon. At the same time, our elected policymakers can't figure out how to resolve an issue of a developer wanting to build on the west bank of the river. They've heard from the world's authorities on what a compound, um, complex, tidally influenced system like the Cape Fear River is, they've heard about it and they're using willful ignorance to not make a decision. Are there any bright spots you expect to see in 2024? The the brightest spot is in the younger generations coming up that are paying attention to what's going on in their world. So luckily, my generation is dying out. And it's leaving behind younger people who have a vested interest in their future, and they know it. So uh, the biggest bright spot is we have young people that are stepping up to take charge because they know they have no choice. You also in the same 2012 essay point to President Theodore Roosevelt's statement about that very idea. The nation behaves well if it treats the natural resources as assets which it must turn over to the next generation increased and not impaired in value. And yes, Roosevelt wasn't a perfect man, but he was a very committed conservationist. And and that quote is, it kind of sums up our responsibility as a mature generation in, in regards to what our following generations deserve from us. You're listening to Coastline. Andy Wood, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you again. We'll catch you on the next episode of In the Wild Coastal Plain. After this short break, Katrina Knight of Good Shepherd Center joins us for a closer look at how well we're caring for our fellow humans in need. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Since the pandemic of 2020, the number of people in southeastern North Carolina who are unhoused, unsheltered, homeless, is rising. The annual count, which has its limitations but offers some data, takes place each January. Katrina Knight is executive director of Good Shepherd Center in Wilmington, the nonprofit's mission to feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, and foster transition to housing. Today, we're taking stock of 2023, the successes and the challenges, and we're hearing about the wish list for 2024. Katrina Knight, welcome to Coastline. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you back with us. Now, tell us about these populations that you serve, because you do divide them a certain way. How do you think about your populations? Mm-hmm. Well, Good Shepherd Center is a little interesting in that we endeavor to honestly serve every subpopulation, every demographic that finds themselves in a housing crisis. And so we're a little different in that way. Nationally, a lot of shelters uh, are designed to serve one or another subpopulation. Uh, But we have always served folks across the board, whether they are a single individual, a family with children, a single parent with children, two parents, veterans, Uh, Again, really every demographic in terms of their background, their age, their family makeup, uh, how long they've been in housing crisis from people who are experiencing what will end up being just an episode of a a period of weeks or months to folks who are experiencing chronic homelessness and by, by definition have been in crisis a very long time or have found themselves cycling through and through homelessness over a period of years. And you said to me that all of your uh, all of your populations have wait lists at this point. They do, and that's different for us. That is an unfortunate new day uh, for Good Shepherd. We haven't experienced that in many, many years. And there are a number of factors, I think, feeding into that. You know, one, um, at present, we are the the only, larger shelter that is, again, serving all of those demographics. So there is other shelter to be had for homeless families, for example, but at present we don't have enough uh, beds or accommodations for that group, just as as one example. And so uh, even on those nights when we have 100 adults and children with us, we have a wait list for families, a wait list for single men, and a wait list for single ladies. And that is that is quite a bit unusual uh, from about 2005 on. In the early years, it wasn't unusual to not have quite enough beds for the single gentleman, but not to be running a wait list for the other groups. And uh, so it's it's pretty daunting right now to know that regardless of who you are, what your situation is, uh, it might take us a, a period of time to make space for you and, and, and to work in, you know, getting you into that safe space overnight. Now, you said that you started to see an uptick, like you were seeing kind of a consistent mm-hmm. uh, lowering of the people struggling with uh, shelter issues and, and ha- having a place to mm-hmm. live. You were, you were seeing that dropping down until the pandemic. What happened and what has happened this year specifically, mm-hmm. 2023? Well, you know, it certainly hasn't been a, a 
a consistent, even downward um, slide. But, you know, for many years as a community, we actually had made inroads in terms of the overall homeless population and in particular in bringing down the number of chronically homeless folks. Uh, And so contrary to, I think, what the average person believes, I think the typical Cape Fear resident thinks homelessness is always on the on the rise, always an upward slope. And in part by being more housing focused as a community, uh, we had really kind of turned the tide, as others have, you know, around the country. We did see an uptick with Florence, of course, that over a period of months evened out. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, since since 2020, we have seen an, an increase. And so where for many years I I would give a little pushback, quite honestly, to, to folks who would uh, suggest that a handful of visibly unhoused people downtown was, was some sort of crisis. You know, by the last year or so, uh, it, admittedly, just like everyone else in the community, we could see, oh, okay, well, actually, there is now a more sizable group uh, at that time hanging out outside the library, even maybe 30 people sleeping downtown overnight. That is that is new territory for us, um, to be sure. And while, as you said, the point in time count is a, it has its flaws and limitations as a methodology, uh, it did it did capture a, a much larger number of people last January than the year before. You know, almost about a, a 200 person increase. And I realize you don't have data for a lot of uh, the deeper reasons, being able to drill down into those numbers. But what is your kind of working theory at this point about why we're seeing an increase? That's a great question. I always think it's sometimes it's tough to pick something apart while you're still very much in the situation and and can't kind of look in the rearview mirror. I think like with housing crisis in general, a lot of things are contributing to this. It's our ongoing but drastically deepening affordable housing crisis. We were calling it a crisis 20 years ago, and now we've sort of lost the words to describe it. You also, I think, I, I think the part that I have a hard time putting words to is w- what feels like a, a growing number of people who perhaps were already on the margins, but the the pandemic and all the fear around that, all the limitations that we experienced, particularly in 2020 as a community, uh, you know, that that seems to have kind of exacerbated the feeling of hopelessness in general, but as an individual of kind of digging out of one's own situation, you know, uh, kind of feeding the sense of, you know, maybe I'm just not ever going to make it. Maybe the cards are just stacked against me and I'm, I'm not going to be a housed person. I I left my own devices, I am not going to get to a better situation and uh, that happy life that I thought was in store for me. You know, I think there is something to be said about uh, a greater rate of, of feeling kind of disaffected um, by, by people who, you know, maybe have always felt like they were kind of left out, uh, left to the margins, um, a kind of a, a deepening sense of that. So giving up and maybe taking on the uh, perceptions of other people as well, because this is something that you and I have talked about before, the idea that when we look at someone who might be homeless, we don't know. (laughs) There are so many assumptions that we make about people when we see someone who looks like a a person 
struggling with homelessness or who might be unsheltered. Can you talk about, as executive director of Good Shepherd Center, the person who is who is kind of the center of the understanding of this crisis, if you want to call it that, what you see when you look at someone on the street like that? Like, what goes through your mind first? Well, probably like you, I wonder what their situation is. I Just because I do the work that I do doesn't mean I necessarily know what they've experienced, what they're going through, and what their own perception is of, of whether they actually need help, need assistance, need help getting to a better housing or, or other situation. Uh, so, you know, I often take a deep breath and I uh, wonder if it's the situation is appropriate for me to stop my car or stop what I'm doing and engage that person and, you know, see if they are open to accessing, for example, something that Good Shepherd has or another um that we have some very good outreach programs now in this community. Um, and you just you just never know what that interaction is, is going to be. You know, sometimes that, that person doesn't want me intruding <laughs> in their in their moment or, or their life. Uh, other times, uh, almost to a person, they're very aware that things are available to them if and when they feel open to receiving them. Um, and, and sometimes that person that I have perceived as, as being unhoused is not. And that makes it kind of tricky, too. You know, we we have our own perceptions of things. And, you know, sometimes they just um, they fit that mental image we have of someone who may need assistance, but that's not how they view themselves or that's not how um, they are explaining their their current situation. Now, early on in Coastline's history, and we're coming up on 10 years early next year, you came on this program and talked about the idea of housing first. Mm -hmm. And maybe it wasn't a completely new idea then, (laughs) but it was, Mm -hmm. I think, new to this area. And you've been leading the charge with that here. You've opened a series of, of cottages, shelters around Greenfield Lake Park. Can you just talk about the housing first model, why you think that's important and why it works? Mm -hmm. Because we do know there's some pushback on that now. And that just housing first still makes sense to you. So what Mm -hmm. is what is that about? So first, I should say that housing first is an adjustment for social workers before anyone else, actually, you know, for a good 30 years, homeless services developed in this country in a very reactive kind of way. Add shelter, add shelter, add transitional housing, add jobs programs, add all these different services that in the process, as a sector, we sort of developed this idea that people have to go through all these different programs, all these different uh, trainings to then be deemed, quote, housing ready. And I, I was one of the people who had to sit there and really try to process what the National Alliance to End Homelessness and others were saying around the research, the data, that, hey, there there are evidence-based approaches to this work, too. Just as if you worked in medicine or business, there were, there would be certain things you would want to, uh, to employ in order to reach the objectives that you want. And it was a little hard to process at first, but the argument was, you know, in the process, we are keeping people homeless, whether a family, a veteran, a senior, 
we're keeping them homeless with us for 18 minutes, 18 months by definition um, for transitional housing, um, sometimes longer if they were in shelter first. And there was a growing body of research that actually it was more cost effective. It was actually more effective for the household themselves to expedite the move to housing, not not as housing only. Housing first is not housing only. Right. It's Meaning people don't have to be sober before they get into housing. They don't have to get a job before right. they get into housing. Like there aren't requirements. It's just right. we're going to take this human or this mm-hmm. family and put them into a place that they can call their own for now. We're going to stop trying to fix everything about you that we think is not ideal before we determine that you are deserving of an apartment. That doesn't mean there might not be things that have to be addressed with your income. That doesn't mean we're not going to try to help you become healthier if there is a substance issue, if there is mental health at play where you need counseling or medication or what have you. Those things need to be wrapped around and as much or more of a concerted effort made to to connect you with those things. It's just you're not expected to go through all of that before before you convince us that you get to be housed again. You know, housing is kind of the starting place. So, you know, I I think it's interesting, for example, that um, HUD has moved to a housing first orientation. The VA has moved to a housing first orientation. These are not known as rabble rousing, uh, cutting edge types of organizations. I mean, they tend to be kind of stodgy, kind of, you know, just these these big They're uh, not on the leading edge of experimental <laughs> solutions. Right. So, so, so you know it takes a lot of convincing when, when they say, oh, you know what? If you're going to be a provider for us, you, you have to commit to these things. Or you have to commit to this orientation. You're not going to make that veteran stay in your program almost two years before you help him find housing. And so, uh, you know, we had to be convinced as well. But we, we see it now, and now that we've had a chance to actually live it, and, and do the work, we, we see it. You know, the 40 people we have living at our SECU Lakeside Reserve, which is housing based on housing first orientation. I mean, those are 40 folks who are not living in the woods any longer. They're not sleeping in their cars. Uh, they're not at the ER's door three times a week. Uh, it, it's an improvement for them and their quality of life it proves that you really can end the homelessness of, of even those folks who even social workers would have said, oh, I don't know. That person's so challenged. How will we help them make this happen? Uh, but we we all benefit as a community. Sometimes it seems like a big chunk of your work is teaching other people how not to judge <laughs> this, these populations so harshly. Why do you think we do that? Why do we look at them mm-hmm. and point to what is wrong with them so much more mm-hmm. than we say, how can we help? It, you know, and, and I admit to being a judgy person in other areas of my life. So <laughs> so I'll be the first to say, you know, I have to always be working on myself as well. You know, I, I'd like to think that, you know, maybe it's a way of coping. You know, maybe it would just be so crushing to take to heart every person we see in our lives who are suffering. You know, that could be overwhelming when, when life is already <laughs> challenging enough for, for most people. Um, 
So maybe it's a way of giving ourselves an out to say, you know, I don't have to take on being upset about this person I see who um, seems unwell, seems um, to be having what I think is what looks like a very sad life, an unsafe life, um, not living up to their, their potential as a human being. I don't have to take that on if I tell myself, you know, it is sad, but boy, he must have made some poor decisions to get himself where he is now. And it, you know, kind of lets me off the hook to care and maybe to take action about it. And we, of course, are going to add some links and resources to this post so that if people want to be able to help, they can they can see exactly how to do that. That's this edition of Coastline. Katrina Knight, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks also to Diana Topchin of Freedom Bridge Animal Rescue NC and Andy Wood of Coastal Plain Conservation Group. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode along with those links and resources at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for One More Time Coastline. Mm -hmm.